Welcome to Book Me Podcast, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. I'm Lindsay Glode Rainingbird. Join me as we journey through contemporary Canadian literature, reading as much as we can and chatting with authors, illustrators, and other bookish folk, celebrating our dynamic, diverse, and vibrant national literary scene as we go. So grab a snack, get cozy, break that binding, dog ear those pages, let's dig into it. Today we're talking to Joanne Gallant, the author of award-winning memoir, A Womb in the Shape of a Heart. This book moved me to my very core. The heartbreaking account of her experience in between the space of fertility and infertility is a story so needed, so devastating, and just so much more common than we know. So without further ado, welcome, Joanne. Thank you. I loved your book, and I know I'm not the only one since everybody is just giving five-star reviews galore. So kind. People are very generous. (laughs) What has it been like for you to... You know, the response has been overwhelmingly kind and generous and warm. I've I've felt very embraced by people who've read my book and... You know, the moments where people send me a message and say that they've gone through something similar and that they've connected with my book really means everything to me because that's kind of ultimately why I wrote it. Well, it's such an intimate account and just it really feels like a gift you when you're reading it because you were so able to be so vulnerable and give so much of yourself. And I'm just curious how that came to be, like what made you feel like this is something that I need to share because it ended up being the perfect thing to share. Right. Thank you. I, so I wrote a lot during my miscarriages, kind of a therapeutic process for me in the early days. It wasn't so much um, with the intent of turning it into a book. And I read a lot as well during my miscarriages. And I really connected strongly to people who had shared their story in a particular way. And so when I made the decision that I was going to try to turn this into a book, that was what I really wanted to recreate as I wanted to really create an intimate space that people felt like they were there with me because those were the books that really helped me and carried me through my losses. And so I knew in order to do that, I had to be very vulnerable and I had to be very raw and had to be very honest. And even right up until the very end, I'd been withholding one tiny part and I had a conversation with my husband. I was like, I haven't put that in there. And I feel that it's a bit of a barrier between me and the reader. And I really want to connect. And so I just kind of, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it because that was what really helped me. So I wanted people to have that experience. So if they hadn't gone through it, they might understand it better. And if they have, they'll feel, you know, a connection. Definitely. I think everybody did feel that. And that's the vulnerability is what related so hard. I haven't experienced a miscarriage, but I felt every single moment with you there was just amazing. So you were talking about not meaning to make a book and then deciding it was going to happen, that you had to be vulnerable. But t- take me through that process. I've always written, like I've always kept a journal, like ever since I was a kid, like I have a journal from when I was like nine years old. And I would talk about like my little brother peeing his pants or something like that. And so it was very natural for me to turn to writing. I wrote a lot during, you know, when I was bullied at school or different things that happened, things that were difficult. I just turned to my diary or my journal. And so that's kind of what it started out as when I had my first miscarriage and then my second one, I was just writing to kind of get those emotions out on the page to try to sort through things just, you know, for my own kind of healing and therapeutic, you know, process. And then I 
started therapy. And that really unlocked this desire for me to tell my story. It was at that point that it was kind of a turning point where I was like, I'm going to try to make this a book. And I'd always wanted to write a book. I remember I said when I turned 30, I wanted to write a book before I was 40. That was kind of, I told my friends and it was just kind of this goal that I was putting out into the world. I didn't think this would be the book that I was going to write. But when I started therapy and I was able to kind of process things a little more and made that um, decision to write the book, I then reached out to the Writers Federation of Nova Scotia. And I always have to give them a little shout out because without the Alistair McLeod Mentorship Program, this book would not have come to fruition. So it was then that my writing practice really changed and it turned into, I'm I'm really working hard at making this an end product of the book. And what was the mentorship program like? It was incredible. I was paired with Carol Angel Glasser, who is just the kindest, loveliest mentor I could have asked for, especially for a project like this. We hadn't known each other before. And I think that was really beneficial because it's a memoir, obviously. And so she didn't know me. She didn't know my story. She didn't know my background or anything. So she was really able to ask questions and be like, tell me more about this part of your life. You really skipped over four years here. I want to know more about who you were in those years, because it's difficult when you're writing about your own life, you kind of, you don't have that objectivity that you kind of need. So I needed her to kind of show me those gaps. And we went through, I had, you know, I had a completed manuscript at the beginning of it, and it looked very different at the end of it. And it was that that I ultimately submitted. And it's awesome (laughs) and award-winning. So you want to tell me about the award you won and what that was like? Yeah, no, that was incredible. So I, uh, it won the Margaret and John Savage First Book Award for Nonfiction. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was very incredible. I had completely convinced myself I was not going to it. I think everybody does that. And, um, it just felt so validating and I was very emotional and I'm going to cry now maybe <laughs> talking about it, but okay. <laughs> it was very emotional. It felt like a completed circle and my husband was with me and he, you know, has been the person with me during not only the writing of the book, but the, the experiences in the book. And so that was incredible to have him there and to be able to kind of celebrate that uh, we were able to turn these, you know, terrible experiences we went into into something beautiful. So it was definitely, yeah, yeah. it was amazing. <laughs> I'm curious about the cover and the cover oh, art. Yes. If you want to tell me about that. But then also, I love the title, A Woman in the Shape of the Heart. It's so poetic. I'm just curious about you explaining that. I know why, because I read the book, but maybe listeners haven't. So the condition that I have is called a bicornate uterus. And it's a malformation of the uterus that I had since birth that I didn't discover I had until I started um, trying to get pregnant and it's essentially a shape that looks like a heart. So there's kind of this uh, divot at the top and it's not kind of a smooth contour. So when we were trying to come up with a name, we had a couple different versions and then this was the one that we landed on because it kind of has a double meaning too, you know, a womb in the shape of a heart. Um, you know, I lost all those babies and I also have my son. And so it's, you know, a lot of love, but it's also kind of the condition that I was born with as well. 
Well, and how can something that sounds so beautiful cause you so much trouble? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So and and the cover art, um, it was done by local artist Brianna Corscott, who I oh. absolutely love. And you probably know her. Oh, yeah, I love her, too. I was like, oh, that's different than what she usually does. Yes. Yeah. So I have always loved her art and I read her stories to my son. And when coming up with the concept for the cover, we had a, had a couple of ideas and I sent these ideas and then Brianna was approached and asked if she would do it. And she made this original painting and she really captured kind of the whole emotion of the book where it's, you know, you can look at it in different ways. It can be hopeful. It can also be sad, depending on how you look at it. And my husband actually bought the original painting from her without me knowing and gave it to Aww, me on Mother's Day. That's so, it was so very beautiful. Sweet, so I have it hanging in my house. So it's a very meaningful cover to I'm me. Cry. That's such a nice thing. Yes. Husbands, they get it right sometimes. I know. <laughs> He's a good one. So uh, I was very pleased. And it's something I'm, you know, the fact that it's packaged so beautifully is is so wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. It just grabs you when you see it and you're just like, okay. She did a wonderful job. So you were just talking about your son, Teddy. He was born premature and you had to spend a lot of time in the IWK. What was that like? It was a very scary time in our lives. So he was born at 31 weeks. So he was born at the end of December and was supposed to be born the end of February. And we knew it was a possibility, but I think a possibility and it actually happening are very different things. And so it still felt like a shock, even though I know we had been warned it could happen. He, we were lucky. He, he came out pretty strong. He was three pounds, four ounces. So he's very small. And we did spend a little over a month in NICU. And I think, I don't know if it brought about a lot of my postpartum anxiety, but it certainly I think played a role as to how I experienced his infancy when we went home. So during our time in NICU, he would stop breathing a lot and he would need stimulation and he would turn a very scary color. And, you know, all, all these things that you're not really supposed to see in your own baby and dealing with all of that, as well as feeling as if my body had even failed him and that, you know, if it weren't for me, he would have been, had he been inside anyone else, he would have been safe because he was completely healthy. So, you know, dealing with a lot of those guilt uh, emotions that I had were challenging. Although I felt very cared for in NICU. I, I work at the IWK and I had, you know, people come and visit me all hours of the day because, you know, everyone works 24 seven at the hospital. So I was, I felt very embraced while we were there, which was nice for, for it being such a scary few weeks of our life. I could relate to that so much because my son, Lydian, he's three now, but when he was born, he was diagnosed with failure to thrive and he had holes in his heart. So he spent three months in the PICU where he was actually, um, going to get emotional. <laughs> he was actually put into a coma because he wasn't strong enough to get the surgery yet and everything. So when you were talking uh, in your book about just your experience, it hit me so hard because it's so much my experience as well. It's like, that's not at all what you want when you're bringing, especially for you on your first baby, my Lydian is my second child. And it's just not what you want to bring a kid into. And it's no. The, your your expect, expectations of what motherhood is going to be are out the window. Like now my job is to 
keep them alive somehow or sit next to their bed and watch and hope they stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. It's very scary. It's very scary. And it's difficult, you know, as a nurse, and I I worked in PICU for many years as a nurse, it's, it's very different experience. When I became a mom of a baby in ICU, that was a very different experience that I had. And I related so much more to my patients and their families and what their day-to-day looked like. Because, you know, you leave the room and I'm sure you had moments too where you just leave the room and you have a moment of crying or whatever you need to do. I spent a lot of time in Ronald McDonald House and connected with families there and spent time talking. Those are all things that aren't really seen on the medical side. And it's, yeah, it's just not what motherhood is supposed to be. (laughs) And one of the things that you mentioned in your book was just how isolating it felt. Like you would see other parents going through something similar and you would be like ghosts in the hallway because you're just in your own head and you just can't bring the energy to connect with the people around you at that point. No, you can't. And you're just trying to survive you're in this survival mode you're trying to survive you're trying to help your baby survive you're trying to do the whatever care you can do for that day as a mom you know there were certainly days where we weren't able to take him out and and hold him skin to skin I'm sure you had those too and so you just you know hold their hand hold their feet do whatever you can change their diaper if you're allowed to all the things that you take for granted when you have a healthy child at home. Yeah, like the things that you were, <laughs> you don't want to be changing diapers that are exploding everywhere, but you do. You, you do. do. That's all that you want. <laughs> you wish you home. could be. You yeah. want to go into the crib and see poop up the back of their onesie and, and deal with that at two in the morning. You know, anything, anything but but what you're going through in the hospital. Yeah. For sure. But the you were a nurse at the IWK. So you also like you had people around you that were working that you knew and that you were connecting with. But yeah, it was a very different experience when I was on the other side and they would come and we would chat. It was like it was normal, but it wasn't. You know, they would kind of come over and they would look at him and they'd look at his numbers. And and sometimes I felt like I was flipping back into nurse mode a little bit. And and because I knew them and there's a doctor that came to visit me and I think I wrote about it in the book and he was kind of looking at his monitor and he's one of my favorite doctors that I worked with in ICU and he, you know, put his hands on his back and was very quiet for a couple minutes and that's how I know him to come in and assess when I'm caring for a patient and so he was doing that with my son and I felt so nervous sitting there because I know what his face looks like when he thinks things are bad and he turned around and you know, I felt such relief that he was like, well, he looked pretty good, doesn't he? And uh, it was a very powerful moment. So those were such generous gifts that my coworkers gave me. And then also being cared for by the team in the queue and stuff. They were just, luckily they're there, you know, yeah. <laughs> to kind of keep you afloat. So we love nurses. <laughs> yes, we do. But not all your medical experiences were good ones. I was actually struck by how callous a lot of things were when you were experiencing them, especially the internal ultrasounds, which unfortunately I've had to experience yeah. before. They're not fun. No, they're not fun. And and I don't think it's a reflection of people not caring. I think it's a reflection of they don't have the capacity in those roles to really take the time to be to be caring in those moments. And I think, you know, certainly had experience in Emerge and and places like that where they may see, you know, 12 women like me a day. And so to them, it's not a unique experience. And it's difficult when you're, you know, seeing so many patients a day to really sit down and have that moment. And it's unfortunate that those are the places that I had to seek care. 
You know, if I had other places to go, I certainly had some really wonderful experiences with people. But some of the places that we had to go aren't set up to do that emotional labor, unfortunately. And so I found it in other places, not necessarily then. As I, as I went through more miscarriages, I sort of shifted my expectations as far as what I was going to get out of an emergency room visit. And so I would, I would compartmentalize in a way. I don't know if it's healthy, but it was all I could do at the time. It was just, okay, I'm going here to get an answer and then I will get emotional support at home. Somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people just don't know how to react in, mm-hmm. in that situation. They don't know what to say or... Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. For you, is there any like advice that you could give or something that brought you comfort, even from like a stranger, something that anybody who knows someone going through this, if they don't know what to say or how to deal with it, what you might have liked people to say to you? I think the biggest advice I give people is acknowledgement that it's a... a a very sad experience and that to that person depending on who they are that's a very huge thing to go through the loss of a baby or the hope of one or pregnancy however you may phrase it it can be very traumatic it's very emotional I grieved for a long time I'm still grieving and I will be forever and I think what we do is we belittle it in a way in a sense that oh if it happened early then it wasn't a big deal. If, you know, there was something going to be wrong with the baby, then it's not a big deal. If this is your fourth one, oh, you know how to go through this. This isn't a big deal. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable sitting with people who are sad. And for me, the biggest comfort I got was when people recognized how sad I was without, without me really needing to say it. And, and people just acknowledging it. So saying, I'm sorry. You know, something as simple as that, just a sheer acknowledgement of what I was going through. We have uh, a tendency in our culture, society to kind of, you know, want to make things better. And, you know, uh, people would often say, oh, at least you have your son. Like, at least, you know, you can get pregnant again. At least, you know, this at least. And it's that at least that really kind of puts you down, I think. So there was a there was a phrase that I heard um, somebody use online about speaking about miscarriage and they called it disenfranchised grief. And so it's grief that isn't really seen in the same capacity as others. And so people have a tendency not to really acknowledge it. Like if you have a parent pass away, you don't have someone say, well, at least your mom can get married again, or at least you're, oh you know, God, yeah. at least you could have a stepfather. Like we don't do that, but we kind of have a tendency to do that here. And I think it's because it's been something that's just been not spoken about and not acceptable to speak about for so long. Yeah. So many people don't talk about their experience, which is why I feel this book is so necessary when you don't talk about it, then nobody knows. And then it becomes something that doesn't happen or that you don't hear about. So it's unusual when really when you talk about it, you find out so many people you know have had a miscarriage or have had something else happen to them similar. Yeah, exactly. And I think too, when we don't talk about something, that breeds a lot of shame. And so I carried shame with me for a long time and I felt as if I were to blame. I really wore that guilt and felt that way for a long time. And I think that shame really thrives in places that are 
you know, in ways that we're supposed to keep things private and secret. If you're not supposed to talk about it, then there must be something wrong with it. And so by kind of sharing the story, it's helped me kind of rid myself of that shame, which has yeah. been nice. <laughs> and when you have that shame that you're you're expected to be able to do something like this, which is also crazy that women are just expected to have kids first and then do that easily. Yeah. Yeah. And then when it doesn't happen that way, you're sort of, well, what's wrong with me? <laughs> it seems like this is easy for everybody. It, I spent a lot of time trying not to get pregnant. Yeah. And so or now. you would have thought, yeah. Right. And so now it's supposed to be easy and it's not. So what does that mean as a, me as a person? And I felt like I was a bad person and that something was very wrong with me. Yeah. Not just, you know, this. these were things happening to me and, you know, through no fault of my own, but it felt very much like it was my fault at the time. Or you're being punished for some reason, yeah. something that I've never done, but maybe, exactly. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you were talking about your experience with therapy and how you finally decided to go. So what spurred you on to go and how did that experience of finding a therapist go? Yeah. So I had two, I had two miscarriages and then I had my son and then I started having miscarriages again just before he turned two. And I I don't know why after my fourth miscarriage, I felt so differently, but I think it was because I hadn't really resolved any of the trauma that I had gone through before my son or really sought a lot of help for the way I experienced new motherhood, being in NICU and then being really afraid that he was going to die at any moment and going through all of that. And I had you know, they were, I had two, those two miscarriages in short succession. And I just kind of felt very lost and incapable of doing it on my own anymore. And in talking with my husband, he was like, yes, I think you do need to talk to someone like they'll just be able to help you. And I did see a couple of people um, throughout the last few years, but honestly going there really allowed me to understand the not the failure of your mind, but kind of the way your mind can sort of deceive you. Because I think we always believe our thoughts. We always believe that what we're thinking is true. And so kind of unraveling a lot of that and also, you know, unraveling a lot of the expectations that we hold for ourselves and that society holds on us. Like we were talking about how you're, you know, women are sort of seen as expected to have a child. And if you don't, then you're, you know, selfish or you're barren or cold or whatever those things that we've sort of carried throughout society or throughout history. And I was able to kind of work through a lot of that and to examine it. And it was a slow process. It certainly, there's a lot of things embedded in, you know, our upbringing and the things that we're exposed to. Like I grew up, you know, I was born in the 80s. So I grew up with TV in the 90s, like the nuclear family, like the Brady Bunch, like like the, the boy and a girl, white big yes, fence. Yes, yes. With like the three kids, they're two years apart. There are four kids. Like that was sort of what I thought my life was going to be. Like that's, that was who I was. And so when I wasn't that way, it felt kind of like this crisis of identity of, okay, well, who am I then? And if this isn't going to happen for me, am I going to be okay? And there was a long time that I didn't, I wouldn't be able to say, I was like, I'm not going to be okay unless I become a mom. And I'm not gonna be okay unless I have a, a, you know, a family full of children, like a house full. And it took years of work to get to a place where it's like, okay, I'm going to be all right. And 
And it was a very, you know, transformative experience. And I recommend therapy to all my friends, to anyone out there. Give me the therapist number. (laughs) (laughs) You were talking about your expectations for your body and when it doesn't work. But the other thing is that having babies, getting pregnant at all can be dangerous. Like Mm -hmm. they don't talk about that when you're growing up either. They don't talk about that when you expect to have a kid. Like there's a lot of danger just around it. So I don't know if we should talk about Roe v. Wade, but the criminalization like of miscarriage, basically, in some cases now, because DNCs are considered abortion sometimes to them. Yeah. And I've needed I've needed DNCs for almost all of my miscarriages. I had a heterotopic pregnancy with my first one that, you know, it's similar to ectopic. It was twins. So one of them implanted in my fallopian tube and one in the uterus. So if, if anyone heard anything about that talking in the States about Roe v. Wade is that they're concerned that they can't operate on a woman until she's, you know, critically ill with an ectopic pregnancy. That's very scary because ectopic pregnancies are life-threatening. And I, you know, I had to get ambulance and I had to have emergency surgery. And to also bear the weight of that being criminalized is just having that extra stress. Yeah. Incredibly traumatic and stressful for women, for sure. And, you know, I think people often use, I don't know if they actually do, but they might use my story as evidence of, oh, look, this woman lost, you know, a six week pregnancy and she, you know, felt as if she was losing her baby. How can we be supportive of? you know, abortion or abortion rights. And I think my experiences only made me more pro-choice because I didn't get a choice. And I know how traumatic and hard that is to be sort of held, I don't want to say captive, but kind of my body didn't allow for me to have the experience I wanted to have. So why would I want anyone else to not be able to go through life as they want to? So I wouldn't want anybody to to feel that way in any capacity. You speak so eloquently about <laughs> it, but I've clearly yeah. thought a lot about it, too, because it's, it, you know, it's very dear to my heart, like reproductive rights. And I know there's concerns about IVF and all of those things. Like it's all it's all very close to home for me. And I don't think you need to negate your own experience of feeling like what you were growing were your babies because they were right for another woman to not feel that same way exactly exactly everybody is different that way we should all have our own choices we can hold two truths at one time yeah for sure so you included a list of different books and things that were inspirational to you at the end of your own book i'm just curious if there were a couple that jumped out at you that were particularly helpful or comforting? So I really wanted to include that because I've read all of them. That's on the list for starters. They weren't just things that I pulled apart. They were they were books that really cared for me when I was really struggling. And the few that I really that stand out for me right now are uh, Shadow Child by Beth Pounding. She wrote about the stillbirth of her first child And the way she wrote about it was so intimate. And I, I think I read it in like a day or two days. I read it so quickly because I connected so deeply to, to the way that she spoke about it. And her loss had happened several years, like several decades ago. Like I think it was in the early seventies or mid seventies when the care for women in that regard was very different. And so she'd written it 
sort of 20 years later, kind of grappling with, with how that, how that played out. Um, the other book was uh, Notes for the Everlast by Kate Inglis. And that book is, you know, I recommend it to anyone who has gone through any sort of loss because I would turn pages. I've literally like tabbed and underlined so many pages of that book. And I'm just like, yes, that is how it feels. She had her sons were born premature and one of them sadly passed away in NICU. And so she wrote about that and that experience in the aftermath. And and she kind of became this sort of beacon of grief for me where I felt finally, you know, these women who wrote their stories, I finally felt like, okay, maybe what I've gone through is valid. Maybe my feelings are valid and I'm, I just need to sit with them and experience them. And there's something wrong with me that I'm grieving so deeply it's just that we don't talk about how sad this is. So I would say those two are very high on my list. And then anything by Maggie O'Farrell as well. And what are you reading now or excited to get okay. into? So next on my list to read is the new Atessa Mushvig uh, book called Lapvona. I've read almost all of her novels. I think there's really one I haven't read from her. That's the one that has like the sheep on the Yes, yeah. yes. She's very unique. She has a unique voice and I'm very excited to read that one. And the other thing I have... I think I have it like in my cart to pre-order from a bookstore. It's the new Anne-Marie McDonald coming out in the fall. I think it's called Fane. And Fall on Your Knees is like one of Loved my it. favorite yeah. novels ever. And I saw that she was coming with a new one. So I have that one. So I'm really looking forward to those too. And you have an excerpt for us to I read. Do. Do you want to introduce that? Yes, sure. This piece comes after... The last miscarriage I experienced. So this is kind of in the immediate aftermath of my fifth miscarriage. I am waiting for my surgeon to arrive. My view of the OR ceiling is hauntingly familiar. A nurse connects me to a cardiac monitor and I don't respond to her small talk about the hurricane on its way. I'm tucked inside my head trying to remember who I am, but I keep coming up short. I don't know who I am if I'm not trying to make a baby, keep a baby, have a baby. Has my desire to procreate become a chronic disease I need to treat? While lying on the stretcher, I can smell the sour milk of a newborn's neck, the scent of diaper balm, pink baby lotion. There is no baby here. My mind is creating things I want to be true. I feel like I am on fire. A rush of heat travels up my arm, dissipating in my chest, as a doctor pushes the milky white anesthetic into my IV. A mask is placed over my mouth and nose. The oxygen smells strangely chemical, like plastic, and nothing like air. I blink, and it's dark. Joey is holding my clammy hand, and I feel worse than I remember feeling after any of my past surgeries. Perhaps because this baby had made it further along, it will take me longer to recover physically. Or perhaps losing so many is taking an even more devastating toll. My nurse gives me an extra dose of analgesic, noticing my rapid breaths, and I try to go back to sleep. The dark nothing of surgery was a relief, but I am unable to slip back into its comforting void. How old is your son? My nurse asks. He's two, I say, opening my eyes and I smile. Joey squeezes my hand and gives a tiny smile too. All of this, I wave my arms around the recovery room to indicate my current situation, is showing me just how lucky we are to have him. It is a knee-jerk response to use my son as a splint against my pain my attempt to put others at ease by hiding behind the armor of his existence. My nurse looks up seriously from her page and says, you don't have to say that. It's good to be grateful, but you don't have to say that right now. 
I put down my armor, allowing myself to be unprotected, vulnerable. I am sad. I am the saddest I've ever been. Most people want to hear how grateful and appreciative I am to be a mother because it makes them more comfortable in my presence. I've learned to sandwich any discussion about my miscarriages with, but I have a son to put others at ease. My recovery room nurse has read my encyclopedia-sized chart riddled with complications, diagnoses, tests, and the outline of my dead babies in sequential order. She is accepting my sadness in its uninhibited form, not demanding a more palatable version. She cares for me without making small talk. She helps me into my mesh underwear and pad, gives me pills that I take with sips of cold water from a thimble-sized cup. My throat feels like sandpaper. When I'm allowed to leave, she hugs me tightly, and when we pull away, she puts her hands on my shoulders. I'll be thinking of you, Joanne, she says, and I see a wetness in her eyes as she squeezes my shoulders. I believe her. Wow. <laughs> Just crying a little bit. <laughs> That's so beautiful. <laughs> you know, I really wanted to honor the people who really cared for me like her. I really wanted to honor the people that noticed it because as we were talking before, it wasn't a common experience. And to find people who knew to do that was such a gift for me. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, for sharing your story with us and being just so open to talk about this and for writing the book because I think it's going to help so many people. Thank you. It was so nice to be here today. A Womb in the Shape of a Heart by Joanne Gallant is available now in bookstores. And thank you for listening and hanging out with us. Join me next time on this book lover's journey as we try to read more, read Canadian, read local. You know, all the good things. <laughs>